You're listening to Felony Podcast with your host, Dave Dahl, on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. My name is Mark Grimes, co-founder of Startup Radio Network. Also with us in the studio, Dave's partner in crime, Lad Justison. And here's a man with a plan, leader of the band, buff and tanned, Dave, the killer bread man, doll. Well, welcome to the Felony Inc. podcast. Unfortunately, our great host, Dave Dahl, is still under the weather and will not be here today. So it's me, Lad Justison, and the sound guy, all on. And we're going to try to take over the show today. Hopefully, it's enjoyable. So I'd like to say welcome to the Felony Inc. podcast, coming to you from live downtown Portland, Oregon. We share stories that show again and again that there is light at the end of the tunnel. That happiness and success are a state of mind, not the result of material gain, gain or fame. Don't get me wrong, I like making money just like everybody else, but it's really learning to rock the journey with all its ups and downs that I call success. Our best guests on Felony Inc. have discovered the amazing power of accountability and have converted adversity to wisdom and a success mindset. Most of our guests have been convicted of felonies and are now honest, hardworking entrepreneurs. Positive change isn't easy. Transformation is an MFR. As usual, that's me, Lad Justison, and I've known Dave for over 20 years, ever since we met the prison yard at Snake River in 1998. I can testify that horrible rumors about me around town are inaccurate. The truth is a hell of a lot worse. Dave wrote that in there, so I had to say it. All right, so, you know, all on, we had a great um, weekend. Now, you or, did well, some pretty big shows since we, we did. were here last. We played the Governor's Ball uh, to Sentinel on uh, New Year's Eve, mm-hmm. rocked them out. Had a great time, met a lot of cool people. Uh, it was really a good time. Awesome. What did you do all on? What did you do on New Year's? You know what? I went out so much the four or five days before that I stayed home. I had just gone out consistently. My birthday is the 30th, so I had gone pretty hard the night before as well. Wow. And I had the house to myself, so I took advantage of it. Wow. Yeah, real exciting stuff, eh? Man. That blow-up doll got a workout, didn't it? It's a sheep. It's a sheep, dude. It's a sheep doll. No. Oh, well. <laughs> what a good start we got all on. <laughs> you know, right? This is just the beginning. I know. So so we're uh, we're looking forward to this new year, and, uh, and uh, we're going to have some really cool guests. But today, our guest is Dan Wise, also known as RDAP Dan. RDAP stands for Residential Drug Abuse Program, a rigorous treatment program that can get federal prisoners up to a year off of their sentences. To paraphrase what I found on the web, RDAP Dan is a one-of-its-kind consulting 
that took shape from the personal experiences of Dan Wise, who has seen the legal and prison systems from inside out. Dan now wants to help other white-collar criminals overcome their tribulations with the best possible outcomes. The services are geared towards first-time offenders, white-collar workers facing a criminal trial, those serving time, uh, prison time, and ex-convicts who are beginning a new life journey out of prison. Uh, Dan says, our goal is to overcome, or excuse me, over-prepare white-collar workers before they go to prison. During their stay and after their release, we take a delicate situation and help to turn their, their life around and make the very best of this difficult circumstance. This is our pledge. This is our goal. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Fed system. We both all did state time, me and Dave. But I narrowly escaped, this is type Dave talking here, an armed career criminal conviction when he was sent down the last time. As he recalls, you could earn up to 54 days a year year good time on a federal beef. Sounds like RDAP provides an opportunity to save more time off your sentence. And that's just one of the many things Dan helps federal prisoners with. Dan, welcome to the Felony Inc. podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys having me on today. Yeah, well, uh, you know, we've... uh, I looked at some of your videos, and I think I was talking to you about this before we got on air, but uh, you got quite a few things out there, and basically, uh, this whole thing kind of started with uh, a video that you put on the internet, so why don't, why don't we go back, kind of give us a little bit of a rundown on how you got in, you know, to the situation where eventually, uh, you, you know, you ended up doing some Fed time. Sure, absolutely. Um, so... More or less my entire life, I'd always tried to do my best to find shortcuts in getting things that I wanted without putting in the amount of work required to get what other people have worked so hard for. I would see the nice car, the nice house, large bank accounts, nice accessories, and I always wanted those types of things from a young age, but I never really allowed myself to take it serious enough to put in the effort in school or to put in the effort into a career. I was a very, very much so into immediate gratification, getting it here and now. So it always allowed me to take shortcuts, whether it was creating fake social security numbers and selling them to people in the city or around town or even, you know, in different States to where they could get social security numbers with lines of credit attached to them and they could immediately have, you know, 750 credit scores with an outstanding credit history and they could go make purchases, brand new cars, houses, credit cards, knowing they didn't have the ability to repay or the credit worthiness to actually be responsible enough. I didn't care about that because these people would be willing to pay, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars for this sort of information. So I started doing that at a young age, got into call centers where we would do, you know, student loans, credit repair, loan modifications. Not that any of that is by itself a con, but when a high pressure salesperson wants you to buy something, they glorify it, get you to do an impulse buy. And then, you know, an hour later, a day later, you you realize either you didn't need the service or you were sold something that doesn't really exist. So I would kind of just hop around 
changing my phone number, using fake names. I was, <clears throat> I was as much of a scumbag as you probably could imagine anybody out there being. Um, today, I really find myself lucky to not be in prison for the rest of my life or shot by one of the many people that I had uh, abused or taken advantage of throughout my life. So towards the end, prior to going into the prison system in 2014 was when I started my prison sentence. 2011, I worked for a, well, I had a credit repair company, but I was renting space from another call center in Boca Raton, Florida, where pretty much every scam that is ever designed, generated, birthed, probably comes somewhere out of South Florida. So working in this office, there was a couple of guys in there that were talking about starting a new business in the pain clinic arena, basically a pill mill where doctors would write prescriptions. People could come and get their prescriptions for pain pills. A lot of these people were just seeking drugs because they either wanted to get high or they wanted to take the pills back to where they lived and resell them on the street. So they ended up opening up a pain clinic in Savannah, Georgia in 2011. Um, I bullied myself in to get a job there, not having any medical experience, never worked in a doctor's office, had no idea what that was supposed to look like. They told me as long as I was willing to be accountable, show up every day, not steal from the company, they would train me in the areas that I needed to be trained in to at least sound like I knew what I was talking about. Well, when I agreed to take this job, I told them, well, I live here in Florida. You're opening this office in Georgia. Um, I have a girlfriend that I've been with for quite a while. Is there any opportunity that she can also work there? So they allowed me to give her the position as a receptionist answering the phones, basically. And we ended up taking this job right away. It was very evident that things were kind of off. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily illegal right away, but evident that it was sketchy to the fact people were driving from Kentucky, Ohio, Connecticut, all the way to Georgia to get their prescriptions filled um, or to get the prescription to go get filled. So you would see the type of people coming in and out of there. A lot of them look like they were either strung out. Some of them were barefoot. I mean, there was just a lot of evident signs that something was wrong. And I decided to turn a blind eye to it due to the promise that they promised to give me $10,000 a month plus all of my expenses paid, even though that never happened. I never made the money that they promised me. That was kind of not the point. We were only there for about a month and a half, two months before the federal government kind of came in and they did an initial raid where they came in and they went through everything. They didn't arrest anybody that day. They went through and kind of pointed out all of the things that made it look like it wasn't a real doctor's office. So the owners took the initiative to whatever the feds told them they weren't doing. They went ahead and tried to do it, put the right posters up, get more band-aids, whatever, whatever the feds were picking on these owners decided to try to justify and create the illusion that they were a legitimate doctor's office. Well, a month later they came in and did the real raid where they came in and rounded everybody up. They arrested everybody. Um, I was at the other office they had just opened. They went to my house in the morning where I was not. Shelly was there. They kicked in the doors. They about 30 agents. They had guns on the dogs, um, looking for drugs, looking for money. They didn't find any of either except they found a little bit of marijuana in my bedroom where I was not at. So because they couldn't get me because I wasn't there, they put a warrant out for my arrest for the marijuana that they found. And they were able to send agents to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, where I was. And they ended up arresting me in a parking lot in Atlanta, Georgia, for less than an ounce of marijuana. 
that was able to tie it up. So the feds had me extradited from Atlanta to Savannah to where I eventually was able to bond out. And we were looking at a 52 count indictment. If we would have went to trial and lost at that point, we would have been facing somewhere between anywhere from 15 to 25 years. So from 2011 to 2014, we did our best to fight the case, hiring attorneys, everybody within the indictment. There is, uh, I forgot how many of us now, somewhere around 10-ish of us on the indictment. We're all planning on fighting it together. And then about a month before trial, this is in 2014, found out everybody on the indictment had accepted a plea agreement. The only people that were left were myself, one of the doctors, and Shelly. And part of their plea agreement stated that whoever goes to trial, they are required to testify against if we decide to go to trial. So I had to make a decision, go to trial or ask for a plea. They offered me a plea to what's called pleading to information where you can actually take a plea agreement prior to indictment. And I had turned down the plea several years earlier because I was still in the state of mind that I didn't do anything wrong and I'm not going to take a plea for something I didn't do. However, when when it really when the you know hit the fan, I decided that I'm facing 15 to 20 years if I go to trial. And my attorney made it very clear that I'm going to lose if I go to trial. Not only does the federal government have quite a bit of evidence against me, they've also got every co-defendant that's willing to testify against me, which forced my hand to agree to take the plea agreement, which was a 60 month cap, meaning they could not give me more than 60 months. And I was taking out of the 52 counts, I was taking one count of conspiracy to distribute. So they ended up charging me with one count of conspiracy. Uh, I went to my sentencing in, um, I think it was July of 2014. They sentenced me to 42 months federal prison. I'd never, I had no priors, never been in trouble before that. And I was terrified because I'd never been to prison before. Um, I sat in county jail when they originally arrested me. And I only imagined that my federal prison stay was going to be similar to county jail, which is anybody that's been in county jail will tell you it's probably the worst experience of their life, even if it was just for an evening for, you know, in the junk tank. Um, they gave me 60 days to self-surrender because being a nonviolent first-time offender, I was out on pretrial that entire time. And I didn't do anything to show that I was a flight risk. They allowed me to stay out. Um when I was preparing to self-surrender, it was a quite a terrifying experience, and I didn't know what to do or how to actually prepare. I didn't put any effort in my letters. I didn't do anything above and beyond what I thought I should be doing, which was stay out of trouble, don't use any drugs, don't commit any future crimes. And I really thought the judge was going to see that I was a good person and wasn't going to sentence me to prison. So when I received my 42-month sentence... It really, at that moment in time, felt like a death sentence. Uh, I couldn't imagine going to prison. And I know people that have done time and that have been down for a, a much longer period of time. It's like, oh, you got lucky with a 42-month sentence. And I get it. Looking back now, when I hear about people getting 20 months or 40 months or 60 months, I'm like, that's going to go by fast. But for somebody that's never been before, it, you, you, can't, you can't have that same mindset because it sounds like your life is completely over. So a couple of days before I actually turned myself in, before I drove myself to Coleman Federal Prison to start my 42-month sentence, I posted a video on YouTube randomly. Don't know why I did it. Just kind of was tired of everybody telling me, you're going to be fine. They're going to see you're a good guy. 
I already knew I was going to prison. I was tired of people just telling me what I wanted to hear. So I just wanted to vent. So I posted a video on YouTube, just kind of talked about getting ready to go to prison, going for 42 months, what I did. Uh, a little bit terrified, didn't know what to expect. I grew out a big grizzly beard. I thought maybe if I gang weight, grow out a big grizzly beard, nobody's going to want to rape me because I'll <laughs> be ugly, fat, and stinky. Um, that was the mindset. And my friend said, hey, you should make a statement. You should do something crazy when you self-surrender. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. He's like, let's come up with an idea. So he comes up with this idea that we go to a Halloween store, like a party city, and we purchase a prison costume, the black and white pinstripes with the little ball and chain, the little hat. You should wear that in the day you surrender, wear it into the intake. So I don't know how he, he, uh, got me to do this, but somehow convinced me that this would be a great idea. So as I'm pulling up into the parking lot, we've actually got pictures of this. Yeah. I've seen those up, pictures. It's, uh, yeah, it ended up working out. Okay. But that moment was kind of a bad idea. There was a perimeter truck driving, which, surveillance is the perimeter of the prison you know a guy in a pickup truck with a shotgun thank god i wasn't wearing the actual prison color uniform of other inmates because there is an opportunity i may have gotten shot they may have thought i was escaping black and white was not what they actually wore in most prisons you don't wear black and white stripes that's kind of in the tv shows so he pulls up and he's like can i help you and i was like oh, i'm here to self-surrender he goes you're gonna walk in there like that and i said yeah he goes okay good luck. And he kind of smiled and drove off in his truck and I pressed the button. They buzzed me in and they let me sit there for a few minutes. Meanwhile, my friends are in there with their phones recording kind of hidden. So you can't really see their phones. And, uh, these three sergeants walk up to or lieutenants walk up to me, three of the biggest people I've ever seen in my entire life. At least in that moment, they looked extra big. And I thought they were going to see the humor in what I was doing. I was trying not to be too serious about it. So as they approached me, about three feet from me, I walked up to him and I said, you got me coppers. And I put my hands out and I've never been snatched up and slammed against the wall and have my clothes ripped off me so fast that there was absolutely, I don't care what you're trained in. There was, there was no defending this from these three gigantic men that just manhandled me against the wall. And one of them got down in my ear and whispered and he goes, we're not your fucking friend. I'm sorry. I don't know if I can, uh, yeah, you can say whatever you want to. Okay. I, uh, we're not your fucking friend, asshole you're going to enjoy your stay here. And I realized at that moment that this was probably not a good idea. They thought I was maybe mental or on drugs, not stable. So they put me into a special unit for about a week and a half, two weeks where they really monitored everything I did. Uh, the very next day they called me to the Lieutenant's office, the same, one of the same guys that was there. And he said, uh, are you on drugs? I said, no, sir. Are you on any kind of pills? I said, no, sir. I, I smoked marijuana, but that was it. He goes, let me tell you something. If you use pills and you're an addict, then he, then out of nowhere, he looked at me and said, are you a faggot? And I'm looking at it, I'm just thinking to myself, I can't believe this is happening. I said, no, sir, because if you are, you will suck dick for pills in here. If you start withdrawing on my watch, you will start doing things for, for pills. So he kicked me out of the office, and they kept watching me for another couple of days. I think to make sure that I wasn't going to like OD or go through withdrawals to some extent where I would do something crazy before they realized that I wasn't as insane as I appeared to be. And then they kind of moved me off into general population. The rest of the prison story was kind of you know easy peasy. But uh, that was my introduction into the prison system. <laughs> and with that, Dan, uh, just uh, give us one moment, and we'll be right back. Sounds good. Thank <laughs> you. 
TPA dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and we'll send you a very special surprise. Seriously, we will. All right, Dan. Man, you know what? I, I knew that this was going to be an interesting interview. Uh, we've had some guests on here. Uh, I think I explained this to you before that we had to kind of pull everything out of them. Every every question, we had to pull an answer out of them. With you today, um, obviously that's not going to happen. We appreciate that. So let's move on from there. So you go to prison, not a very good intro, but you get in there. And now um, somehow or another, you got the idea that it might be uh, something viable to help other people with that introduction and with release and all that stuff. How did that come about? So, yeah, so once I arrived to prison, um, I, I knew a little bit about RDAP before I went. I literally heard about RDAP probably about two weeks before I went to prison. I did not really know what qualifies you, what disqualifies you. I didn't know any of the ins and outs, which there, there are many. However, I was lucky as when, when I took my plea agreement, my, you do, after you take a plea agreement in the federal system or found guilty, you do what's called a, a PSR, pre-sentence report or PSI, pre-sentence investigation, which I believe they also do in the state side. Based on the interview and what you say during that interview determines a lot of what will happen and can happen throughout the prison system. So as the probation officer was asking me, do I use drugs? Am I addicted to any drugs? I started to say no. And my attorney stopped me and he said, hey, I need to talk to my client for a minute. Brought me out in the hallway and said, Dan, I don't know everything about RDAP, but there's a program in prison called RDAP, a residential drug addiction program, whatever he referred to it as. And he said, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I know it can shave some time off your sentence, but you do need to say that you have a substance abuse issue. And I said, well, I, I smoke weed on a regular basis, but I don't consider that a drug. He goes, it's not your job to consider what is and what's not a drug. Marijuana in this, in this United States is considered a drug. So make sure you go back in there and tell them that you do use marijuana if that's the truth. Went back in, told him that I used marijuana, explained to him when I started it, when I, how often I used it up until the last time I used it. Now that I'm in prison, I'm trying to find out more about this program. So the RDAP unit where I was at, Coleman Low Federal Prison in Central Florida, has an RDAP unit there. And every Wednesday, they had an open house. So I went to the open house, spoke to the doctor there, and said, hey, I would like to find out about qualifying for this program. She said, well, you qualify for the program based on what's on your PSR, but she goes, do you know why you're out of low security versus a camp? I said, well, what's the difference? She goes, well, you sh you're camp eligible, meaning you should be at a camp where there's no perimeter fence. A lot less inmates, a lot less scrutiny, a lot less everything. It's a much lower level prison. And I said, well, why am I at a low? She goes, you have an open case, an open detainer, an open charge. I was like, for what? She goes, it just says here that you had a failure to appear at your court date in Georgia. And I said, well, I've never missed a court date. This is a mistake. So I had to fight this for a month. And what happened was, was when I was arrested on the feds charges, I was also, excuse me, I was also arrested with the state. I went to my state court date. And the state agreed to drop the charges because the feds had picked it up. But when the state dropped the charges, they misfiled it. So it still showed that I never showed up to court. So I had – and when you're in – anybody that's listening to this right now, check your paperwork. If you're looking to go to prison, make sure you have no detainers, no open cases in other states, other counties. Because when you're inside a prison 
and you're trying to fight this from inside, you don't just pick up a cell phone and, and start calling your attorney. It's it's jumping through a million extra hoops that you don't need to jump through right now. So it took me about 30 days to get my case manager to call down there to explain the situation. And sure enough, they just filed the paperwork inappropriately. And once they fixed it, it showed Nell and Voided that I the case was dropped. This was three days before the RDAP program started. So within those three days, they were able to get me transferred, sent over to the other unit. It was all in the same prison, just a different unit within that prison. But if I had not made it within those three days and I was not able to start the minute that RDAP class started, I would have had to wait till the next class, which is about 90 days away, which probably wouldn't have left me enough time to actually complete the program, get the time off. So I take RDAP thinking this program is going to be, I compared it to when you get a speeding ticket. You go take driving school, they wipe the points off of your ticket, but we all know if anybody's ever done driving school, you can sleep through that entire class as long as you pass the stupid test they give you at the end. Well, that was my take on what RDAP was going to be like. I thought, oh, I'll jump through their hoops, do a little tap dancing, get a quick year off my sentence, go home sooner. The program was by far the most stressful thing I've ever done in my entire life. Uh, I wanted to quit. I wanted to drop out. I almost got kicked out several times. You are forced to do the opposite of what prison politic suggests through our social media outlet, which is snitches get stitches. You don't tell on anybody. You keep your shit to yourself. Well, in RDAP, you are forced to hold each other accountable in front of everybody. So an example, you'd stand up in a morning meeting and say, my name is Dan Wise. This morning, I'm going to hold Alon accountable. And I'd have you stand up in front of 150 people. Alon, yesterday I saw you behind the handball court smoking a cigarette knowing this is against BOP policy, knowing you're not allowed to have cigarettes in prison, you're thinking you're above the rules, and then I'd give you some bullshit what I want you to do to work on it. Meanwhile, I just ratted you out in front of everybody, which you're required to do. When everybody signs up for that program, you sign a piece of paper saying, I'm going to hold other people accountable, and I'm going to give and receive feedback. Well, this was a very hard thing to do because I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. And it took me a while to get onto the page, realizing after it had been done to me about three million times for every F up I did in there, I would get held accountable. And it was so stressful that I was like, I think I would just rather do the extra year. And when I thought about that and I would tell my family about that, they were like, man, this isn't just about you. <laughs> You've got two little girls at home waiting. <clears throat> this part is always hard to talk about. So I apologize, but you have two little girls that are home waiting for you. They didn't do anything to deserve this. So you not wanting to do this just shows that you're, again, taking the easy way out and looking to blame things on other individuals. So that really kind of hit me hard in there. And I started to take the program serious only because I was trying to get through it. I really didn't care about the program, but I wanted to get the year off. So about three or four months into this, what I started seeing happening was as much as I wanted the time off, I also started to identify what a pretty crummy person I had been up until this point. And I started seeing changes taking place. I started seeing the type of people I was not hanging out with anymore that I was no longer associating with, uh, the type of people I was gravitating towards that were doing the right things for the right reasons. And it just became this kind of switch one off of my head that had never gone off. And I've had people tell me, Dan, you're screwing up. You're doing the wrong thing. I've, I've heard the same thing a million times. I just never listened to it. This was the first point in my life where I was like, I got to make a change. And I started going through the program. I graduated RDAP, got the year off, and then I qualified for something called Second Chance Act, which you can receive up to a year halfway house. Uh, it was very hard to qualify for it. I really had to jump through a lot of hoops to get it, but they gave me 11 months halfway house 
which ended up only allowing me to serve 13 months of my 42 months in federal prison. And then I went to a federal halfway house near my home where I was able to go to work, eat real food. And while I was at home, and feel free to ask me any questions that I may have skipped over about prison, but while I was in the halfway house, I was finally for the first time able to get onto a computer and check my email. And in my email, I saw all of these YouTube comments. I'm like, what are these YouTube comments from? I honestly forgot I even posted that video on YouTube before I went to prison. And they were all from mostly 99% of those comments, and we're talking hundreds and hundreds of comments from first-time, non-violent individuals that were getting ready to go into the prison system that had all the same fears, all the same anxiety I had about getting ready to go. And as a hobby, I thought, oh, this would be fun to answer these questions by making additional videos. I always thought it would be fun to be in front of a camera, so why not? Started posting these videos on YouTube. And before I knew it, people started reaching out to me, asking me if they could hire me to help them. And I'm like, hire me? Hire me to do what? Tell you how to not get beat up or raped in prison? It's not going to happen where you're going. You don't need to worry about that. They're like, no, 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 no. How did you deal with your attorney? How did you deal with finding out if you qualify for RDAP? What kind of letters did you write for your to your judge? How did you prepare for the PSR? How did you talk to your children? How did you deal with the two and a half years you had of not knowing what's next. How did you sleep at night? It was just a million questions that I realized I had all those same problems, but now that I'm out, I kind of forgot about it. And I was like, you know what? That's a really good point because those are things that I truly struggled with. Started making educational videos based on not worrying about getting beat up or raped, kind of clearing the air real quick that anybody going to a nonviolent offender, first time offender prison, white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter. That's not a worry. Get that out of your head. Your worry is what are you doing right now? to mitigate your sentence, to possibly end up with probation or reduce sentence or go to an ideal prison or get home sooner. And that's what we focus our business model on now. We have an amazing team of individuals that help us do that. So you started out with the video that you, you know, you did before you went in. What, what a godsend that was that you actually put that out there. Once you got out, you know, you had, you know, this opportunity to, to reply and, and, and tell these guys about it. So at first, of course, you were getting clients from the videos, but how do clients find out about your business now? Is that basically where you're at from the videos or do you guys have websites? What, how do you guys do it now? Yeah. So, I mean, I have a website. My website's rdapdan.com, R-D-A-P-D-A-N.com. But to this day, still, I would give it a good 95% of our business comes from our YouTube channel. We have over 400 videos on YouTube that, talks about anything and everything you can imagine somebody preparing to go to prison would encounter. Uh, you go on and Google anything. You go on and Google RDAP or, or first-time offender or white-collar individuals. If you scroll down and you're digging enough, my channel is going to come up. Um, we also do a lot of work with, with the Federal Defender's Office, private federal attorneys who have seen our work and they've seen the benefit not only the the mental stability that we help with their clients, but also how we've educated a lot of these attorneys that don't fully understand how some of these programs work. Um, people are concerned about 5K1s. And for anybody who doesn't know what a 5K1 is, 5K1 is basically if you cooperate or sometimes when you take a plea, the feds will offer you a 5K1. And in prison, a 5K1 is considered your snitch card. So unfortunately, you know, and, and some people berate me for, for admitting to this. I have a 5K1. Um, I was fortunate that my 5K1 didn't require me to tell on anybody. Everybody had already taken the plea except for me. But the Fed still gave me a 5K1 for, for taking the level of acceptance that I took. 
but I explain to people, if you're going into prison, anything beyond a low security prison. So in feds, you have camps, lows, mediums, and penitentiaries. If you're going to go to a medium or a penitentiary and you're cooperating on your case and you end up getting a 5K1, the minute you walk into the prison yard, if you're a white guy, a white guy, whoever's running that group is going to walk up to you and say, what are you in for? We need to see your paperwork. You've got about a week to two weeks to provide your paperwork. If you don't provide your paperwork, you're either going to check into the shoe we're going to beat the shit out of you or we're going to extort you and you're going to pay to not be to not be bothered. Uh, in a low security and in a camp, those kind of things don't exist. So I get a lot of calls from people going, oh, my God, I just found out that I have a 5K1 and I didn't know what that meant. Does this mean that I'm going to get beat up or killed in prison? And 99% of the people that I talk to, first-time offenders, nonviolent, it's not an issue for them. So it's able to put things like that to rest. You hear about people committing suicide prior to going to prison it's not because of what prison's actually going to be like if their mind goes crazy they see things like walk up abroad and the tv show oz and that's what they picture so i just put out videos every week we put out several videos to educate people of what to expect what they can do and they reach out to us and retain us for our services so dan you took advantage of the rdap uh, in prison right but Can't these guys that are going into the prison system, can't they take advantage of it before they go in there to get a reduction in their sentence? No, RDAP is only in prison. Um, It's only in the feds. It's a residential drug abuse program that takes place in the prison system. So you can't do it while you're out. Now, you can go take classes. You can go to a substance abuse class. And so, for example, to kind of so I can answer your question directly. How do we help people sometimes not go to prison? So we'll, we'll take any one of you. You get in trouble, tax fraud, you did something you weren't supposed to do, whatever it was, smuggling drugs, marijuana. You're getting ready to go to prison. You're on pretrial. You've got probably several months before it's going to end. And we say, well, what are you doing right now? Well, I'm staying out of trouble. I haven't pissed dirty. Uh, I do what my probation officer says. Okay, great. What are you doing above and beyond that? That looks like what everybody else in your case is doing. There's nothing unique or special about you. We tend to compare ourselves to if you're a good person and you think about going to prison, you're going to go, well, the judge is going to see I'm a good person because I'm not like the murderers and the rapists that he just got done sentencing. What you don't do is you you tend not to compare yourself to people who are just like you go to prison every single day. So how are you appearing different from somebody that looks just like you? You're probably not. The letters that you write to the judge talk about how hard this is going to be on your children how hard this is going to be on your wife. Your parents are dying of cancer. You're the sole provider in your household. Please, Your Honor, give me a second chance. My family doesn't deserve this. They're the ones that are paying the price. And the judge is going to say to you every single time with his giant Jedi sword, as he cuts your head off, he's going to say, you should have thought about that before you committed your crime. So getting people in a different mindset early on while they're out on pretrial, getting them involved in AA, NA, taking programs, going out and speaking to schools about the choices that you made are now landing you to go to prison and changing the mindset of somebody else that may make a future mistake that might not now because you just shared your story. How you write your personal narratives, your character reference letters, what you're doing with your day-to-day, maintaining a job. If you're going to owe criminal restitution, financial restitution, whatever it might be, and you think, well, I'm going to pay it when I get out of prison because I'm not court ordered to pay it now, but you're driving around in a Land Rover, a Range Rover, a Porsche, the judge is going to go, well, how much have you paid? Well, I haven't been ordered to pay anything yet, but you're driving a Porsche. Go get rid of the Porsche. Pick yourself up a little Honda. Whatever money you got from the Porsche, give it to your attorney, put it into escrow, and even if even if it's not going to put a dent in what you owe, maybe you owe $100 million and you got $40,000, you're showing intent. You're showing that you've made better decisions beyond what the average person makes that goes through the same funnel that you're going through. So now you're giving the judge something to look at going, you know what? 
you're not the average person. Maybe I don't need to sentence you to a long period of in prison. Maybe I don't need to sentence you to prison at all. And a lot of a lot of the times you have what's called federal guidelines where it says these are the guidelines based on your crime, based on your points. This is what I'm supposed to sen- sentence you to. But those are advisory 99 percent of the time. The judge has the ability to go up or below that. So when you just give up and go, well, I'm going to get what I'm going to get. You're just accepting it and you're not willing to put in any hard work or effort. We coach and motivate our clients on what they can be doing to put themselves into a different bracket to create the possibility of not going to prison. You know, Dan, I I have a personal friend that this type of situation just recently happened to. He was going to go to feds. Uh, He had a potential of uh, 80 some odd months that he was going to do. But because, you know, like you, they allowed him to stay out for a certain period of time before he had to turn himself in. And it was like a year or so before he had to go in. He went through um, a drug and alcohol program, uh, finished that. Then he went back through that drug and alcohol program and did it again. And when he went in front of the judge, he had paid all child support, restitution. Everything was paid up, you know, that he could possibly pay up. And those were the, you know, those were big things that the judge asked him. And then his attorney told the judge, look, all these things are paid up. You know, if he has to go, everything is ready to go. And it was amazing because he got three years probation. The judge looked at all these things that he had accomplished in that time that he was waiting to be sentenced and go to prison. He, instead of sending him to prison, he actually just gave him three years probation. So that's what you do in helping these guys and, and girls get prepared to, you know, to face this time. And some, how many times have you seen that where they actually don't go to prison? Uh, quite a few. And we actually, you know, we, we glorify and showcase those, those cases because until you see it happen, it's like, if I told you I can fly until you see me fucking fly without cameras and wires, you're not going to believe it for yourself. So when we tell people through YouTube, Oh, he's got a client that got probation. It's like, sure you did. Where's the proof. So we have them come back on and share their story. We had a guy who was looking at 60 something months and the judge ended up sentencing him to one day in prison, which he already had time served from the day they counted the day he went in there to get fingerprinted and released the same day. They counted that as his one day. He was given six months home confinement on an ankle monitor and five years federal probation, not supervised release. There's a big difference between supervised release and federal probation, but he was given five years federal probation. Uh, his guidelines, and then people are like, well, what were his guidelines, though? Is that what he was supposed to get? It's like, no, his guidelines had him serving around 60 months, right, if, the, if he was to be sentenced in the middle. Nowhere in his guidelines uh, recommended or addressed probation. The prosecutor did not agree to probation. The prosecutor fought with the judge, saying, Your Honor, we have a plea agreement. The client has agreed to take these terms. And the judge said, That's great. I'm not bound by your plea agreement. There's no minimum mandatory on this client. This client has done more. He's got over a thousand hours of community service and not some bullshit community service where you're out at the food bank handing out food to homeless people. Not that that's bullshit, but nobody knows why you're doing that. If you're at the church holding the door, if you're giving out food, no one knows why you're doing it. When you go to schools or troubled youth, youth groups, and you stand up and you speak about what you did and you're doing that as your community service. Now, not only are you putting in the community service hours, but you're actually sharing a, a story that completely altered your life. And then you're explaining to these people that, hey, I'm going to prison for the choices that I made. You don't have to make these same choices. It's very easy to make a mistake in life if you're not focusing on consequences or you're saying I'm doing this for my family. 
when you express that and you do it in a proper environment in a proper venue, and the judge sees that, okay, not only did you do your community service, but how many people did you change their minds on how they were viewing life that they may make better decisions because of you? Uh, absolutely, what your friend did is probably the reason why he didn't go to prison. Now, you can always have a hardcore judge. It doesn't matter what you're going to do. The judge can be like, that's great. You're going to prison. But if I explain to you that, hey, there's 1% chance that you won't go to prison if you do all of these things, why wouldn't you do them if you know there's an opportunity to not go to prison? You, you would be a complete imbecile not to at least attempt to try to do it. Oh, man. That, you know, Dan, that's some good stuff. So, look, we got to go to another break, and we'll be back in just one moment. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. And with Ruby's mobile app, you easily control just how they screen, transfer, and take your messages. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com slash startup radio to sign up or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code STARTUPRUBY. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you and you get $150 credit. You know, Alon, I uh, went down to Ruby uh, and uh, I picked up this ring and I was wondering, uh, will you marry me? Me? Yes. This is all so sudden. It is. Um, is it, you know, I got it turned down again. Yeah, sorry, lad. Oh, well, Dan, you know what it's like, don't you? To be turned down from your love of your life. <laughs> sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so look, I got a couple questions. Uh, go back a little bit. You said that um, your girlfriend at the time, she was with you there. What happened to her? And, you know, has she had a life-changing experience as well? Or what's going on with her? Uh, great question. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so Shelly, me and Shelly, we, uh, we met each other in 2006. We got in trouble in 2011. They sentenced her. She all, that's when we all knew that we were all going to go to prison for sure because she was considered the lowest man on the totem pole. She had less knowledge of everybody. Her only job there was to answer the phone and just direct calls. So they ended up charging her with what's called misprison of a felony. And if anybody's never heard of that charge, it's a complete garbage charge. But misprison of a felony just basically says that you probably had an idea something was going on and you didn't report it doesn't say you knew for sure but you had an idea so she was she took a plea agreement her plea was for 36 months was the most they could give her uh the judge and she got sentenced before anybody else so i we went to georgia i sat in on her sentencing we were all her attorney my attorney everybody else's attorney was 100 percent certain shelly was going to get probation so when the judge handed down a sentence to shelly sentenced her to 13 months even though that's, again, people that are listening to this are going, oh, 13 months ain't shit. 13 months is 13 months when you've never been in handcuffs in your life. Um, we all knew the rest of us were completely fucked. We have, like, if Shelly got 13 months, they're going to drop the hammer on the rest of us because she didn't even get a conspiracy charge. So Shelly went to the same prison I went to. She went to Coleman. She was at the camp. So Coleman, just so people know, Coleman's in Central Florida. It's the largest Bureau of Prison facility in the United States. It's got two penitentiaries a medium, a low, and a camp for the females. Everything else is for men. Um, so yeah, Shelly went there for 13 months. We thought once I got sentenced, I got sentenced after Shelly had already surrendered. 
based on my 42 months, we were certain that I was going to serve probably three to three and a half years. That's kind of what we thought I was going to serve on my sentence. So as Shelly was preparing for release, we lived in South Florida this entire time. However, Shelly's originally from Washington State. She wanted to be near family until I was released. So she changed her address back to Washington. Well, now into my prison sentence, we're finding out that, hey, I'm in RDAP. I also may qualify for the Second Chance Act. And all of a sudden, my 42 months turns into 13 months. So I'm getting out just a few months after her. She's already scheduled to go to Washington. So instead of having her rechange all of that, which would have been an enormous amount of money to uproot and move to Washington or back to Florida from Washington State, I changed my release address while I was still in prison to put the burden of expense. Why not? Cast it onto my bill with the with the feds. So the feds paid for me to get to Washington. Um, Shelly moved to the city I was in in Spokane. She already had her cosmetology license while she was in Florida. So she went and took the test here, passed it, started cutting hair here. Uh, she supported us for the first probably year, year and a half, as I was in the federal halfway house working a a very cool job. I don't want to talk anything bad about the job because I was fortunate and very lucky to have a job, but it was $10 an hour. There's not a whole lot you can afford on $10 per hour. The The interesting thing was about that job was uh, it was a friend of mine that owned the company. So he put me on the books, starting me at seven in the morning till nine o'clock at night on the West coast. He was an East coast company. So come three o'clock in the afternoon, my time on the West coast, I was done with work. But he kept me on the books until nine o'clock. So I had another six hours to just sit in my little office doing nothing. And that's kind of where the YouTube videos really started getting pumped out because I had these six hours to myself. Meanwhile, I'm not making any money on it. And I'm, I have this job. I'm going home on the weekends on social passes. Shelly's busting her ass. She's working 80 hours a week, pay rent, pay car payments. Her car broke. She had to buy a brand new car. So I told her, I was like, hey, babe, I think I'm going to quit my job and go full time on this YouTube thing. And I remember her saying, I don't think that's a good idea. We need, even though you're only making $10 an hour, if we lose your income and you don't, you're not able to supplement that income, we're going to be in a real crisis here. So she's like, I need you to think about it. So I thought about it. Another couple of months went by. People are slowly, I was never charging. People were just sending me donations, 50 bucks, a hundred bucks, 500 bucks. People just randomly send me donations to help them. And I wasn't giving them the level of help that I'm giving them now clearly because I didn't know what to do. Well, I started finding these other prison consultants that are out there that do similar to what I do. A um, couple of guys on the internet that were doing it. And I started talking to them, engaging with them, and finding out they only focus on white-collar criminals, white-collar individuals that probably spent mid-six figures for their legal defense that are now charging these guys for consulting fees, charging them 20, 30 grand. And I'm like, isn't that a lot of money to charge somebody to go through this? And they're like, well, these guys can afford it and the level of help we're giving them. And I'm like, well, okay, I guess it makes sense if somebody's willing to pay it. I guess that's on them. So I started looking into it more and more and more. And I just couldn't I couldn't deal with the fact that they were charging them so much money. So I started looking at what services they were offering. And none of them took me serious because I didn't have the, the white-collar-esque look. I didn't look like an attorney. I wasn't sitting there with a shirt and tie. I was in my wife beater, black shirt, sitting in a camera, just kind of like just talking like you and I are talking right now. But what they, where they underestimated me was people really started connecting with that because it was a very real connecting type of a personality. And I started getting these calls. And I said, look, I, I said to myself and Shelly, I can do exactly what they're doing. 
at a fraction at the cost because there's there's no real cost associated to this other than your time and effort you're putting into it. So we created a plan that does way more than what the other guys do. And even now, where we're charging around $4,500 to $5,500, they're charging $25,000, $30,000. And we've created such a a screw-up in the industry to where these all these other – I mean, I'm getting sued by one right now. It's just – it's it's ridiculous on how offsetting we made it because now individuals are seeing why am I going to pay you 20 grand when I can pay Dan five grand? What am I getting for 20 that I'm not getting for five? Absolutely nothing. We've hired a licensed, uh, a licensed life coach by the name of Jenny Good. We have a chemical dependency professional by the name of Diane Carpenter. We have an ex attorney, who went to prison for a white collar crime by the name of Angela, who works with all of our clients preparing pro se motions at the capacity of a paralegal. We have so many professionals that are attached to us in what we do now, they're creating the influence that these other guys just can't do. They don't have the time to do it or the care to do it because they're getting 20 grand a client. They just don't have the interest. Uh, we've, we've totally taken over the industry by doing the right thing for the right reasons. And when the same application that applied in prison saying to myself, do things for the right reason, everything else will fall in place. And that's been the method that we've gone with. And it's 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 destroyed the industry to a good point to where now not just rich, wealthy white people can take advantage of these services. If you're a white collar criminal or let's call it a blue collar criminal that's making twelve dollars an hour going to prison for the first time, you've got the same fears, the same the same issues. You're thinking about killing yourself just like the rich guy is. So why should only somebody that's rich get to take advantage of a service like this that can completely reshape your life? Do you do anything pro bono? You know, somebody just doesn't have any money? We do. We do all the time, unfortunately. <laughs> um, you know, and here, here's, the, here's the kicker to that. It's very unfortunate, and we've gotten away from it a little bit, and I'll tell you why, is the pro bono people do not put in the same effort. They don't, they, they don't apply themselves. They don't answer the phone. They don't do what they're here. We are doing all of the same work that we would do for somebody that paid five grand. And we can't get you to send in basically we'll call it homework. We give you tasks that we need you to do. We have check-ins we need you to do. And because you're, you have no skin in the game, you're like, ah, I was busy. I was doing this. We can't get you to do the same level. We can't have you take the same level of interest that somebody that's got something invested into it. We had sponsors for a while that were paying for a lot of these people. We had people that were so amazed with what we were doing. They're like, oh, my God, I've never been to prison, but I didn't even know this existed. How can I help? Well, like, well we have people that can't afford it. If you want to pay their fee for them, that would be amazing. We stopped taking money from these sponsors because these people drag their feet and don't do what's necessary. So somebody that's getting it for free, they could get the same service, but they don't put in the effort. And in the end – it's our reputation on the line. If somebody's not following through and they're not satisfied with what you did, you're already in a state of mind where you committed a crime to go to prison, where you're not necessarily taking accountability out of the gate. I mean, you've been to prison. I've been to prison. Initially, when we get in trouble, we tend to go, oh, my God, they're out to get me. Um, a lot of people are not in the position to take accountability just yet because that means really facing their demons going, man, I made some really fucked up decisions to get to where I am. And that's a really hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. So when you've got somebody that you're doing for free and they're going, well, you haven't helped me. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. It's like, okay, A, you didn't pay anything. And B, you haven't answered one phone call. You haven't sent in your character reference questions. You're not doing the homework that were assigned to you. There's no magic wand that's going to mysteriously make everything go away. We can't be willing to work harder than you're willing to work on yourself. Well, you know, Dan, um, 
we're getting at the top of the hour right now. We're going to have to uh, kind of shut things down. But um, can you throw out your email and all that good stuff? Uh, anything you want to put out there so people can get a hold of you? Absolutely. And just to sum that up, me and Shelly are still together, still kicking. Sweet. Um, Yep. So my name's Dan Wise. You can look me up on any social media, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, just under rdapdan, R-D-A-P-D-A-N. My email is rdapdan at gmail. Uh, you're free to call text anytime, 509-434-4695. And definitely visit us on our website, rdapdan.com. All right, Don. I w- uh, Dan, I want to thank you so much for coming on here. It seems like we could just go for an, a whole nother hour. Um, really good stories. Really appreciate what we're doing. And, of course, uh, we're proud of you for uh, for changing and uh, then, of course, helping other guys uh, hand- handle all this stuff going into prison. But thanks for joining us this week on Felony Inc. Podcast. Uh, join us every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time at Startup Radio network.com and you can catch up on previous episodes on any podcast app if you know what's good for you you'll shut up and listen if you don't i can't promise you that we won't show up at your place late at night and make you listen breaking and entering dave's ass this will be full-on breaking and listening mm-hmm. and a big thank you this week dan wives uh, rdap which stands for residential drug abuse program next week Our guest is George Kudu with On Deck Logistics. We attempted to do a show with him early on, but Felony Inc. producer uh, managed to mess up the sound. So we had to shit-can that episode. And I want to point out that I wasn't the producer on that one. (laughs) Thanks again, Dan. It's been great having you here. And coming up after the break is Latino Founder Hour with your host, Edgar Navas and Claudia Cardenas. And their podcast is usually in Spanish. So, Cuanta Madera Podria. Tierra una marmota, si una mandible de madera podria tirar madera. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.